moving your career further faster. That's the mission behind Cascading Leadership. Each week, we're bringing you stories of women, immigrants, members of the global majority who have risen to the ranks of senior leadership in the world of business. Get ready to gather the insights of some of the world's best business leaders and apply those to your career. If you're interested in sales and marketing effectiveness, organizational effectiveness, talent strategy, DEI, or HR tech, tune in. We're going to share with you what they don't teach you in business school. Welcome to the show. Welcome to another episode of Cascading Leadership. I am your host, Dr. Jim, and with me I have, who do I have? Your co-host, Lawrence Brown, otherwise known as LB, your resident nerd and executive coach. Hello, LB. Wow, you got all fancy with your title yeah, I, I had and your to intro. add a couple. I mean, like, his, his is so long, I'm like, I gotta add something in here. It's all about the brand. It's either I drop in all of that stuff that I said, or I, we haggle over like how long my last name is. So I think my option works better <laughs> than the full last name. So, so enough of your shenanigans, buddy. So we have another first, like every week, it seems like we're doing another time episode. We have our first teaching episode today. And when you might be thinking, what the hell is a teaching episode? Today's topic is on building effective teams with empathy and understanding. So that is a heavy topic and we're not gonna solve all the problems that exist within that title in one day, but I can't think of a more qualified guest to have on than our featured guest. I'm Becky Chung. I have been in talent management and talent acquisition for the last 15 years. Currently, I'm the Global Talent Acquisition Director for Cielo, which is the number one RPO globally. So we provide recruitment process outsourcing partnerships to a number of clients around the world. And I'm excited to talk about this topic in particular because I'm certainly passionate about high performing. I am super excited to have you on and a couple like side notes for the audience to understand. Becky is... Uh, among her many awards and recognitions, the most important thing that the audience needs to know is that she's one of my favorite people in Milwaukee, so there's that. And on a more serious note, she's done some pretty significant transformation efforts. Uh, we've known each other for a while across a number of organizations. So when we're talking about somebody who is well-versed in transforming organizations, transforming how teams work together, how teams communicate, Becky is I don't know, the bee's knees. I sound like I'm 80 years old when I say that, but that's uh, we'll go with that. So Becky, super excited to have you on. With that being said, let's get into the conversation. It's going to be wide ranging, thrills, spills, all that. Lawrence, this is when you throw in some big voice stuff in there. In a world where nothing? All right, never mind. It was humor because it was absolutely, <laughs> that transition was hilarious. I couldn't think of anything deep voice to say other than uh, deep laughter. Becky, Let's set the stage a little bit. And before we dive into the business conversation, tell us a little bit about your formative experiences, your career journey, and how you got to the point that you're at now. So I grew up in Wisconsin, Southeast Wisconsin, outside of the Milwaukee area in a smaller community. I am the daughter of two very hardworking, hard-driven individuals, which certainly has transitioned to me. My father is a former farmer and then has gone on to build a really successful career in a global company. So he's certainly been a role model for me that way. My mother is somebody who's continuously pursued her own education. And so that's really transformed into me just having this hunger and appetite for constant refinement. And I'm one of those weird people who like doesn't truly pursue accolades, but I just seen things work out. I just like seeing things be successful. That really motivates me. Work motivates me. One of the things that uh, that's important for 
the listeners to know is Becky has oversight over a global organization. And I have have not firsthand, but secondhand visibility into the amount of effort she puts in to transforming this organization from where it was to where it is now. So I don't think you can put in that sort of effort if you weren't passionate about what you wanted to do. So it's great to have you here. And thanks for giving us that background. When I think about building effective teams and navigating the communication culture that needs to be built Mm -hmm. for you to get to the point where your teams are effective, there's a pathway there that we're going to spend a lot of time exploring. But before we start on that pathway, I think it's important to set the stage in your experience and you look at dysfunctional organizations. Sure. What are the hallmarks of dysfunctional organizations that you've commonly seen? One of the most important things, if you're going to have a team that is truly going to work towards a common goal is you have to have trust. If you have any behaviors that um, undermine that trust, that take away from that trust, it's going to be incredibly hard to uh, move forward. And that's one of the things that I really try to establish with my teams. And that's something that regardless of where someone lives in the world, what their experiences are, that's just a core need people have is that security that I'm in an environment where I can believe what's being said to me. I can trust the circumstances I work within. And so I think if you can't give people that security, that they can trust what's happening around them, you will never get their full attention and their full energy towards your goal. Yeah, absolutely. I think that studies have shown that one of the most valued, I think the most valued trait about a leader is trust and loyalty. So I think you're a spot on there. The most important part of trust is vulnerability, right? Is my openness. And I believe in being honest about who I am and what I bring to the table, which means I am not perfect. I am me. I'm going to bring my flaws to work. I'm going to bring my emotions to work. I'm going to bring what I am good at to work. And so as a team, we need to be aligned in that and supportive of each other. And that means if I see you doing something where I think you're making a mistake, I'm going to say something and I'm going to ask for the return. And that's one of the principles that I've really developed in all of my teams to have them be high performing is that open dialogue. Because if you can do that, you gain so much more. You work with teams that are at various levels of maturity Mm -hmm. in terms of their professional career. So I understand what you're describing as far as what's necessary, but getting to the point where you can actually execute those conversations, it can be, it's difficult. (laughs) Yeah. It's scary. It's difficult. You have no idea or frame to, to figure out how is this person going to react to it. What are some of the things that a leader can do to lay the groundwork to have that sort of conversation? I think the first thing is new leaders often think they need to have all of the answers. And that's actually not true. As a new leader, your job is to know the questions to ask, to understand where to to look for solutions, but it's not to have the answers. When you look at the types of problems that occur, you have simple problems that are yes or no. You have complicated problems, which might require some additional input. And then you have very complex problems where There is no answer and you're going to have to test and try things. And so I think as a leader, learning that those are the types of situations you're in and being able to step back and say, is this a simple problem that I should know the answer because I've seen it before. There's other demonstrated successes to rely on. Is this complicated where there's a couple options and we have to figure out the best one? Or is this truly a complex situation that we just have to figure it out as we go? And a lot of what we're experiencing in the world today is that complex situation of 
nobody really knows the answers. We've entered a new way of working and we're all navigating this together. And so I think for new leaders in particular, but even senior leaders, just accepting that you don't have all the answers, nor should you. To some degree, that's empowering, right? If you, There's a lot of pressure to feel like you have to get it right yes. if you think that you have to have the answer. And you're hitting on so many things, but I'm a, I read a lot. And so my nerd's going to come out here. But two, <laughs> two things that you said came out that from a reading standpoint, the transparency and the vulnerability piece is very Brene Brown-esque. Yes. Uh, so I, I appreciate that. And then the second one was when you were talking about this open dialogue and being straight up with someone, uh, the other one that it, it, that it invokes, uh, Kim Scott in Radical Cancer. Yes. So both women who I think are admirable and definitely people should read what they write. Yeah. And truly who I model myself after. Kim Scott is great. And I think she's at a ton in her radical candor. I like to be at about an eight. <laughs> <laughs> like you got to find your own style, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but you're right. That, that was a key takeaway. And as I talk about that text, oftentimes people a hundred percent to your point are like, Ooh, I don't know if I could do that. It's about being authentic. You, yes. you cannot be radically candid and trying to be someone else. Like it's, you'll fail fast. But uh, I think it's a great call out in terms of you are an example of those texts. And one of my favorite ways to approach some of those difficult conversations. So backing up, Jim, you said like, how do you build this? There's some foundational work. And one of the things is it starts in the interview. So I hire people in with this expectation that this is the environment that they're going to find. I'm going to commit to this and that they want to commit to that as well. And so one of my favorite questions to ask somebody is tell me a time you told your boss they were wrong. Do you have that kind of bravery? Because I need the people around me like that. And culturally, that's been a hard question to get some answers to because in some regions that I work with individuals, that's not acceptable. So it's trying to find ways to really still continue to cultivate that and respect those cultural needs as well. And so maybe it's not telling your boss they were wrong particularly, but tell me about a time that you came forward that a solution was wrong. So we set that stage. And then also I do talk about my leadership style and what that's going to mean for them and what that's going to look like for them. And that does mean I'm going to ask you that if you see me falling on my face, you tell me and know I want that. And then if I see you falling on your face, I'm going to tell you because I care. I want to say one thing. I know it's Jim's turn. Disallowed. Jim can tell you that's actually one of the, that's one of the reasons that when we started working together, that I actually hired him because I had the confidence that he was actually going to do that. And over time, you are so much better as Mm -hmm. a leader surrounding yourself with people who are going to see the gap and Mm -hmm. help you fill that gap. So I used to say famously that, I hire people that I believe have a skill set that I don't have to help mm-hmm. shore that up, that I will actually totally. have the opportunity to learn from them, as well as offering them an opportunity to shine in what their level of expertise is. Yes, absolutely. And that's one of my favorite things in how I build teams is I intentionally look for people with different experiences. I find that it brings so much more to the table. And one of the things we also talk about in the interview process, because I think that's so important for setting the stage for what someone will find and then reiterating that as they onboard and then as they go through their journey is 
I am intentional in bringing on people who will find their space to shine. And we're going to figure out what's not natural for you. You can call it a weakness. I like to say what's not natural. And we're going to try to find somebody who can help you with those things that aren't natural. We'll try and build some buffers so it doesn't get in the way and inhibit your success. And then we move forward. When we talk about building effective teams or building high-performance organizations, we're starting at the talent attraction side mm-hmm. of the equation. One of the things to, to LB's point and also your point, Becky, philosophically, like we had that point of view that, uh, hey, I want to hire people onto my teams that, that offset some of the gaps that I might have mm-hmm. as a leader. And when I was building teams, I've always built teams with the intention that everybody I hire is my replacement because mm-hmm. my purpose in building a team is to hire a group of performers that will rise to my level. And by consistently doing that over a period of time, I will also rise. So when we talk about servant leadership and that mentality about how do you move forward in the world? How do you move forward with your teams? The intent here is as you're building the team, you really have to orient yourself to what's the end game for you. Is the end game for you to create as much opportunity for the people that are underneath you and push them up? Or is the end game for you to get yours and then whatever happens with everybody else is what happens. So there's a mindset component that comes into it. I want to loop back around to something that you said, Becky. You said that the, one of the traps that you see new leaders fall into is the fact that when they're confronted with a problem, they automatically go, or at least they reflexively go into problem-solving mode. And I'll raise my hand right now that being a typical guy, as soon as a problem is put in front of me, I go into problem solving mode. So how do you build the discipline to back off of that instinct to solve the problem and really ask the right question to figure out what is the right problem to solve? So I would say it a little differently because you want to enter into problem solving mode. What most leaders tend to do is try to move into solution identification mode. And so if you step back and you just ask the right questions of saying, okay, let's confirm what is the problem we're trying to solve? That's a monumentally powerful question. One of my favorite leaders frequently leverages that question. And it's always so powerful because you assume so often you're aligned on the problem and you're not. And sometimes it's three different problems you're trying to solve. And you need to be able to step back and say, okay, let's go through the data we know, the information we have, and figure out what's the part we don't have, and then start to work through solutions. But that natural tendency to say, I have the answer, you have to really work the muscle. And I'm not going to say I still don't struggle with this sometimes. This is natural human behavior. But to step back and just say, okay, am I clear on the problem? What are the things we've tried? Why haven't they worked? What could we do that's a different format of that? Who else might have the answer or similar experiences and start to bring those groups together? So your point on defining the problem and defining the correct problem, that's great. And I think one of the challenges that I'm trying to figure out or I've I've been confronted with is what if there's disagreement between what the actual problem is? How do you build agreement and consensus? Because you're going to need that before you figure out what the go forward direction is. So typically, if you don't have alignment on a problem, I like to believe in facts and feelings, and it's usually because emotions get in the way. And so ego gets into the way and being able to strip out that emotion and really drill into the data and the facts. And then also being comfortable naming someone's behavior. That's one of the most powerful tools I've found in my toolkit is just to be able to say, hey, I'm picking up on some defensive risk. 
defensiveness right now. Or I feel like in this moment, you're not seeing the actual issue because of your own emotions. And that's fair. Let's take a time out and come back. If you get out of a heated conversation, sometimes it is hard to step back and go, okay, rationally, what is actually happening? And my husband, who is incredibly insightful, will often say to me, if I'm having a rough day, they're just trying to do their job too, because this is about interpersonal conflict. And so just that recognition of saying, this person at the end of the day, this isn't personal. Most people care too much about themselves to really think about others. And so being able to step away from that and go, they're just trying to get to an outcome. Clearly I'm the blocker. So let's figure out how I can stop being the blocker. It was interesting because I was thinking about what Becky was saying about facts versus feelings and really having these conversations around people needing to be clear how they're coming off. And so my probably arguably my favorite two words today are emotional intelligence. That's something that is so critical. And that's what you're addressing here is that the awareness that you have to basically embrace what someone else's disposition is. And at the same time, like the way in which you approach the other person's disposition means that you have to have a good awareness about what you're, where you are as well. And as you had mentioned, your husband saying everybody is just trying to get it done as well. And maybe we, we, that causes us to, to look at it differently. So that's really exercising that emotional intelligence. I am listening to how you're saying how that comes into play. And it's such a good point because you're touching on one of the things I really believe in. And one of my principles is to honor where a person's at. I really try to exercise that act as often as I can. And that's empathy, but that's also just letting go of my own per- preconceived notions, my own thoughts, my own judgments, and just saying, this is where this person is at in this moment. And I need to meet them there. And as a leader, that's been incredibly powerful for me in being able to work with my teams and to help understand that in this moment, this is where they're at and whatever that is personally, professionally, because of work demands, if I can at least respect that, honor that, put that before my own needs, I'm going to be able to pull them up. As you think about the philosophy that you're breaking down for us, one of the things that comes to mind is that as you help newer leaders, is there any sort of a framework, and I don't mean necessarily in a, te- in a technical way, but is there any sort of a framework or, or a standard go-to that you have? So I do absolutely recommend people to check out Brene Brown. I do recommend that they look into Radical Candor because I think those are very powerful messages to receive empathy honesty. The other piece I really like to help leaders understand is that if you want to change behavior, there's actually a method that you have to go deeper than surface level. So a lot of times, first-time leaders will manage to an outcome. And so I'll just pick on productivity, for example. So you aren't making X number of widgets. And so I'm going to go tell you, you need to make more widgets. That's it. That's the end of the conversation. That's not actual dialogue and understanding what's going on. So then you go, okay, I, your behavior, so you go from outcome behavior, your behavior is you don't seem high energy or engaged or focused at work. So you manage that. I need you to be more focused at work so that you get more widgets. You haven't actually gotten to the problem yet because at the core of that is a belief. And if you can speak to someone's belief and change and influence that belief, then you can actually change their behavior, which then drives their outcomes. And so I was recently having a conversation with a leader who's incredibly concerned with being 
being perceived as a micromanager. And so I'm having to just really help her understand what micromanagement is, but why her belief around that is so core to her and really digging into what's driving that belief, what's behind that belief, what's the fear, what's the lack of security she's feeling to try and unpack that so I can get a different. Those are the kinds of conversations and those are the things I'm trying to teach her to do with her own teams so that she can get the results. And I've been really successful in seeing that applied through leaders to their teams and that the results then do follow. All right, here's my scientific response. Boom. I couldn't have said it better, LB. I'm sitting here in the chat just, I don't squee often, and that's a technical (laughs) word, squee, but I'm literally sitting here going, oh my God, that is so much gold. (laughs) You're you're winning the hearts and minds of nerds all over the world, Becky. (laughs) Keep going. One of the things that I'm trying to figure out as we're talking about this stuff, the stuff that you're talking about, it's great, but it sounds pretty advanced to me. So if I'm talking to a early career person or an early leader, how do I get to the point where I have the space or maturity or discipline or whatever word you need to have these sort of conversations? Like what do people need to be doing who are earlier in their career to mature in this way, to be more productive in their interpersonal communications and relationships and and business conversations. I would say that the starting point is understanding the principles and reading about emotional intelligence. The most impactful leaders are do have really strong emotional intelligence because at the end of the day, that is how people operate. That is the framework that drives all of us is our emotions. We aren't machines, we are humans. And with that comes that really studying, understanding, taking assessments to know more about yourself. What is your disc profile? There's Myers-Briggs, there's a thousand different assessments. Learn that about yourself and learn it about others so you can operate differently. Tune in next time for the conclusion of our conversation with Becky Chung. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cascading Leadership. We hope you enjoyed the story as much as we did. Make sure you subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Leave us a review. Tell a friend. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, reach out to me at jim at cascadingleadership.com. Tune in next time for another great episode that will help you move your career further faster.